This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Script to Screen at the UCSB Pollock Theater. This is our final uh, show of the year. We'll be back for a sixth in October, don't worry. We're coming back. What more awesome way to end it than ending it with Star Wars The Force Awakens? Uh, obviously, I grew up on this movie and it impacted me greatly, so it's so amazing to be able to show it here and share it with you. Uh, but our guest today is an amazing guest. She's, she's done a lot of wonderful television and film work. She was producer, editor, and directed some episodes of Alias. She's edited numerous films, uh, Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, of course, uh, what we just saw. Uh, she's, she's editing the new Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence movie, Passengers. She also edited Endless Love and a few other films, which we probably wind up talking about. But her biggest accomplishment, I would say, is a very small independent film that she got an Oscar nomination for called Star Wars. Uh, so please welcome the Apollo Theater stage, editor Marianne Brandon. Uh, obviously, before the film came out, you couldn't say anything about the movie during interviews. <laughs> right. So it must be kind of great. Yeah, we can just kind of talk about it in the safety, you know, since we've all seen it. I'm still not sure what I'm supposed to, <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Well, then, then I'll ask you a very safe first question. Who was raised parents? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I have to be really honest with everyone. I actually don't know... Um, <laughs> I'm not even sure they know. I don't know. If, if J.J. does know, he wasn't talking. Larry Kasdan wasn't talking about it. Although I have a friend who has, you know, said Luke is absolutely her parent because when you know, Maz is under the castle and she tells her you know, it was Luke's and his grandfather before him, that means she's the next one. And I was like, well, I never thought of that. <laughs> so... Your guess is really as good as mine. And I've been you know, doing... Uh, some film, you know, films that have are serialized enough that uh, we change it all the time. We sometimes start with one intention and suddenly go, you know what? Scrap that idea. Let's change who everyone is. Well, people remember the original after Empire Strikes Back. Han was not necess- Luke was actually Leia's love interest exactly. or brother. They hadn't decided because of Harrison Ford not committing. So you never know. Uh, Sometimes things just work out differently and better ideas come along as you're working. And um, that certainly is the case for most of the films I've worked on. So let's go back before. All right. So this is before the film was shot, before when you first brought on with your editing partner, Mary Jo Markey. Um, So I assume the Disney First Order agents were very strict with the script. They were tough. You had to read it in secrecy. Well, I brought the original script, and as you can see, it's red. <laughs> red. It has my name plastered all over it on every page. So I would, if it got out, they'd know who it was, and you can't Xerox it. And you get locked in a room, and you have to read it. And I don't know if you've ever read anything 140 pages long on red paper, but it freaks <laughs> Havoc with your brain. <laughs> so, what was your initial reaction when you read the script? 
When you, you finished the script, what was, your, what was your first feeling? My first feeling was, oh my God, I have to read this again because I have absolutely no idea what notes I'm going to have. And, um, you know, I, and I'm going to have to go through this again. Ouch. <laughs> um, and I talked to JJ and I begged him. I said, please, please, please let me take the script home. I just, you know, I need to go to sleep and then reread. Um, and then I read it again. And I thought it was terrific. I mean, I thought amazing but as most things you know there were a couple of characters that were very unclear Maz was a huge um evolution of a character she was in the film but honestly we nobody actually really knew what to do there was this vague idea she was a space pirate at one point and even in the press Early on, there were quotes from J.J. going, yeah, she's a space pirate. And Lupita was out there going, yeah, I'm a space pirate. And, you know, I was in the cutting room going, please, can we take the line about how she's a space pirate out? (laughs) (laughs) So um, there was that. And, you know, there were big chunks of... um, The film actually had a different opening in the original script that I read. And... um, it was an opening. We ne- it was a great idea that never we got as far as doing sort of a previs version of it, which it was an all CG thing, and um, we just it, this was a better opening. This was a better, more fun, more jump right into the action kind of opening. The other one was a softer, confusing but very cool idea. So there are things like that that you know change. Yeah, let's talk a little about the opening, because you have uh, the Stormtroops massacring villager, villagers, which was very, very intense. Classic. And, but you also had to uh, <laughs> balance the severity of the situation by also homage to the nostalgia of it, introducing Poe in a humorous way, mm-hmm. uh, and even Finn's, you know, turning to... How did you balance that? The seriousness, but not trying to show too much in well, the other room? And- it's really hard. Um, well, I'll tell you, at one point, the original opening was this lightsaber going through space with a hand attached and burning up in an atmosphere. And then, you know, but for, we realized quickly that for people who, I know there are probably none out there, but there are people who have never seen Star Wars, believe it or not, including Mary Jo Markey, um, before this one. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's for the fans. So we decided that was one of the reasons that opening wasn't, we didn't pursue it, but um, it was really important to uh, have humor in the opening scene. And we actually went back and reshot those lo- a few lines with Poe, where he goes, uh, who talks first, you talk first, I talk first. Because uh, we realized in the tradition of Star Wars, it's that you need that tongue-in-cheek in the, when you're at the, you know, in the really dangerous spots. And the other thing I didn't realize, and I'm a fan of Star Wars, I forgot how brutal the stormtroopers are, but they're really horrible. You know, they say horrible things like, you know, I'm going to kill you scavenger scum and things like that. And, um, and, and just how, so we, you know, just went with the brutality. You know, we talked and talked about them massacring, massacring the village. And um, there was a part, that, that scene went on much longer, as most scenes do, where there's one scene where part of that scene was Poe comes around one of the huts and confronts a villager with her baby, and she's afraid of him, and he has his gun up, and he just can't bring himself to shoot her. And we realized, you know, um, as sweet as it was, 
it took too long. We needed to get on with the humor. It wasn't, it didn't really, we were going to get enough of that from him later on. So it was really important to balance it. Really, you know. And that sometimes you, when you get the dailies and you're seeing the footage, that's something you discover, you know, hey, JJ is not working if we do it long enough? Or has that happened usually in the script page? You know, uh, it's, it's funny. It's hard to read a script. As, and, and no, right away, you know, it's... I mean, you can read it and go, oh, I think this scene is going to be too long. But until it's sort of realized um, in camera, it's hard... I wish I had that talent. I wish I could just read it and go, you know, no, you don't need this, 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 you know. But it's hard until you see it put together and the rhythm of it and how it plays out. You know, the most surprising things are the things you thought you'd dump but become really important and so I think, you know, you always shoot longer as much as you can so you can balance that. Um, so usually it comes at uh, once the scenes are all put together and you, can, you start to feel what's too long and what's not playing or what is repetitive or what's not clear, what's getting muddied up because there's too much or it's not clear. Because you have a lot going on. You're introducing Kylo Ren. You're setting him up. Mm -hmm. You're setting up Poe and you're setting up Finn, Mm -hmm. you know, who's not completely ready to quit in the the villager scene. So you have a lot going on, but in a very tight, tight sort of... Yeah, there's a lot in that scene. And you're setting up BB-8 and... And then you're introducing the Max von Sydow character who basically we're going to kill in one second. So that scene inside the cave used to be a lot longer and we all talked about it and we're like... Well, he's going to be dead in about a second, so let's not devote too much time to him, you know, because it'll just start to raise more questions about um, who is he and why does he have the chip to the map. And um, so, you know, you start to see things like that. And, um, you know, the advantage of doing a sequel, this being, you know, number seven, although I would more say it's the fourth one of... That um, you know, uh, <laughs> five, six, and four, five, six. Uh, you uh, have the advantage of a not, you know people understand this world already, so you can shortcut some things without uh, missing too much. Like you see a guy in a big black robe with a mask, and you're like, oh yeah, he's the bad guy, and he's going to be related <laughs> to someone because everyone knows Star Wars is a family saga, and um, you know so. You don't have to spend that much time because it's already been written. It's already been experienced. Remember, in the original Star Wars, episode four, Luke wasn't even introduced for a very long time. So they spent a lot of time trying to set the world and how ships fly. All right, so then we'll talk about Ray's introduction. Um, There's no dialogue, which I found amazing. It was a longer sequence. Uh, It sounds like there's a lot more freedom in that, but at the same time, you have to make a concise characterization without any words. You know, we... um, we there were some words at one point, and we decided it would be really cool not to have words because she she lives by herself. She's the, she's raised herself. She's this scavenger who spends most of her days alone. And when uh, John Williams got it involved very early on doing the score, and he did such an incredible raised theme. It's so beautiful. We were all so blown away. We were like, well, let's just take out all the words. And then when she does talk for the first time, you know, you'll be, um, I think it's just to BB-8. And, 
you know, then you realize there's this, that's the first connection she makes in her life, really, aside from Ankara Plutt, who's horrible to her. So it sounds like it's a great advantage of having the greatest musical score guy that's ever lived. He's <laughs> amazing. He is absolutely amazing to work with. And he's um, charming and everything you've ever heard about him that's awesome is actually true. But I've never seen someone work so hard and just get it. I mean, you know, just watching it now, I hadn't seen it in so long. It just the music is... It's just such a driving force in this film. It's like it makes you happy, it makes you sad, it makes you scared, it makes you lean in, it makes you lean back. Um, that theme that he wrote for the um, when the fighters, uh, the uh, X-wings come in over the castle battle, is I mean I could just listen to that in my car without anything. It's so um, evocative. Yeah, and it's. Um and I mean, he, George Lucas, who was a control, complete control freak, was the only thing he let go was music in the originals. Like, told John, do whatever you want. I have a feeling he told Marsha, do whatever you want as well. <laughs> but yes, I would imagine that he did because it's undeniable. I mean, he gets, he's so good. At, um, I don't know, he must hear themes all day long in his head. <laughs> I can't imagine what that's like. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so now we have the great opening on Jakku, uh, mm-hmm. discovering the Millennium Falcon. I, I would say the, one of my favorite shots of the movie. The first time we see the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, that was a big. That, you know, we played the. That's the first time we played the theme of the Millennium. Yeah. The only time we played the old theme, and that was a big argument. People, there was like a rift in the post production of who wanted the theme and who didn't want the theme there. Uh, what was the challenge of a sequence like that? Because, again, you have the action, you have the humor, you have, you're also still setting up Ray and Finn for the first time bonding together. Right. So how, how do you balance that as an, uh, in the editing room, making sure each one gets, doesn't overshadow the other or weigh it down? Um, well, you know, a lot of that is J.J.'s direction and how he times the action. You know, that's one long, big shot where they're running um, before that quad jumper blows up. Um, so a lot of it is their timing, his timing, and getting that right, and um, just feeling, you know, the music helps, obviously. The fact that all that was shot on um, location, a lot of those explosions are, re- actually, all those explosions are practical. I mean, they're enhanced, but they're practical, so they're actually reacting at the right time in the right way, and... Um, I think J.J. just creates an environment on the set where he encourages people to use their sense of humor and their sense of timing, and, you know, we all try really hard to honor that. Um, And even from the editor point of view, I mean, obviously there had to be CGI, of course, but since he did do as much as humanly possible, real effects, Mm -hmm. real sets, does that help you a lot more when you can cut down the CGI just a little? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure, it's like what person over green screen, but um, I think it helps the look of the film because you're not constantly being pulled out and going, oh, that's fake, I don't believe that, that's not really there, that uh, background thing looks, you know, um, phony. But for me as an editor, uh, like the Falcon Chase, you know, there was no Falcon Chase. (laughs) There's just, you know, I put in cards that say, Falcon goes over the ridge and down and turns, scoops to the right and scoops to the left. I wouldn't, you know. Um, so I spend a lot of time on a sequence like that, kind of 
I, I always approach a sequence like that by having it driven by the actors. So whatever was happening in the cockpit and whatever was happening um, to Finn in that gunner thing, um, I that drove the scene and that drove what, you know, and there's storyboards and there's a thing we do called previs. So it's a computer generated version of a shot of what it might, it's going to start to look like. And then I have a very close relationship with the VFX supervisor and we talk about it we talk and I just kind of feel out the rhythm of the length and I'll put a card into length and hopefully be somewhere in the ballpark. Um, but that was a funny scene because we spent, when I got the dailies, like, because those gunner things, if you think about Finn goes down, so he would just like literally fall into the into the glass. When the Falcon's in space, it's okay because there's no up or down. But when it's on the ground, it was. We spent all this time trying to figure out how do we get him. He's sitting, but he really should be sitting, looking straight down. It was really a nightmare. <laughs> but you know, you just do it at one point, and it you go okay. Yeah, speaking of the visual, so how, what does that kind of relationship work for in a movie like this? Obviously, the editor and they have to be very close. How does that work? Do you brainstorm together before then, or just how does the... For the, me, well, I, you know, thoughts? obviously I work really closely with JJ and Mary Jo, and we brainstorm it together, and, you know, or he'll start shooting a scene, and, you know, it's like, good luck, Marianne, and see, see you when you have something. And, you know, I'll go back, and I'll ask him... Or I'll do something and he'll go, oh, I never saw it that way. But that's interesting. And so we share ideas. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of, you know, thinking, figuring it out. And there's probably a core group of people on this film particularly that spent a lot of days and nights just figuring out, you know, planning out. And then I'd cut it or Mary Jo would cut it. And then we'd come back and go, well, you know, maybe it needs a little more of this or that's not working. But... It's a lot. It's definitely you have to use your imagination and kind of have your own rhythm. And do you think if you didn't have the previous relation with JJ, Mary Jo, and some of the other teammates, it would have been a little more difficult for this movie? The fact that you guys have worked together as a team for much maybe make it a little easier. Or? Well, I think that you know it's always nice to be around a crew that you're familiar with, and I know the DP for years and Roger Guyette, the visual effects supervisor, and that's. Um, yeah, sure, it's helpful. I know how they think, and I can go to them and, um, you know, especially JJ, because, you know, we have, I just, we just eat, sometimes, you know, we'll email all night about a scene back and forth, and that's, you know, that's always great access. But, like, I just started, uh, well, halfway through this film, Passengers, which has a lot of CGI. It also takes place in space, and... Um, you know, I hadn't previously had a relationship with the director, but, it, you know, I think anyone who, I mean, for me especially, you know, if you have a, get a great crew together and you're with a director you respect and you have a good script, it, it instantly clicks. You're instantly in. <laughs> or that's how I work anyway. I need those relationships to work. Uh, let's talk a little Kylo. Uh, Kylo Ren, I, I like his, the character. He's kind of the uh, supervillain but then he becomes more the lost soul teenager. Uh, when you first look at is that really how you saw him, or did you have to maybe even edit him a little differently at the beginning and the end of the film? 
especially if he started having his temper tantrums. Oh, it's tantrums. interesting. Um, well, I think Adam Driver is that. I mean, he sort of evokes... I think that's why he was cast, because he has this kind of lost quality, but this kind of menacing quality, um, especially because he's so big and black hair and, you know... Um, the interesting thing about him was that originally we uh, we unmasked him much earlier in the film. He in the first scene with Snoke, he doesn't have his mask on, and we realized that it kind of t- that lost boy quality. We didn't want it so early on, so we uh, CGI'd his mask back on from until he is in the room with. Um, Right. See, those are the kind of things I'm not. I'm not sure I'm supposed to say, <laughs> but we did. Uh, there, I said it, and um, it actually helped his character tremendously because he became more menacing. So it wasn't a question of cutting it differently as much as he. We did, just didn't show him. Also, that scene where he talks to the Vader mask used to come much earlier, and we moved it later to uh, start to bring his insecurity into the light so to speak, later on. Because it was really important to us that, and I don't know how many of you felt this in, ha- in the death scene, that we really wanted to try to make it feel like you might believe that Kylo might not kill him, like that might actually turn to the light um, until the last minute. And that was uh, part of moving that scene where he's saying, I still feel it, I feel the pull. And, and, you know, of course, because the luxury of having a mask on is you can have him say anything. Yeah, so uh, a little uh, the, the, of the second money shot, Han and Chewie entering the Millennium Falcon. What yeah, was that experience like for you when you saw that, the dailies, Han walking into the ship? Uh, it was great. <laughs> but that scene, that scene was sort of, that scene was the last thing they shot before um, Harrison Ford actually had his... Uh, accident on the Millennium Falcon. Um, And uh, it was staged in a really strange way. So although the entrance was brilliant, originally Finn and Ray were standing right there. And and when I got the dailies, I was like, I love the entrance, but I don't get it. Do they not see Ray and Finn standing right there? (laughs) And JJ's like, no, there's like a bend in the thing. And and I was like, I don't see the bend. (laughs) Because don't you know the Millennium Falcon? I was like, not that well. So um, we had this three-week hiatus because, of, because we shot everything we could shoot before Harrison was back, and um, it had to do with insurance and all that. But it was, what was great about having this three-week hiatus was we got to rethink everything we had already shot. And, and you know, a lot of it was great, but that scene in particular, although the entrance is identical, it's the same entrance, that he shot, he just reshot the same exact entrance. We then rewrote the scene so that they were hiding underneath the grate, and you know Chewie and Han come in, and then they un, you know find them underneath. And it was just a simple solution to such, um, a, like it was so overcomplicated the first time. So often that will happen. You go, what? You know, suddenly a scene is really overcomplicated, and you do this like one thing, and it becomes really simple. So while you almost, uh, they almost killed Harrison Ford, it actually helped you guys kind of rethink it and take a, take exactly. a breath. And... It helped tremendously that we had that time. It's like that thing where you, know, you shoot a whole film and you, then you go and you learn everything you can learn and then you can reshoot the whole film. And it can be great. 
Uh, talk a little about the Maz scene. I mean, that was something we, we, you touched yeah. on a little earlier. That was complicated because you have a lot of moving parts, a lot of CGI, a lot of character exposition. How did that cr- that, that whole... That was a really, really very... That, that was the hardest thing on the film, was figuring out who she was, how she related, how she related to Han. You know, I mean, the, the, the first part of that was, you know, I kept saying... Or one of the questions that kept coming up was, why doesn't Han just... They, they're in the Millennium Falcon. Why don't they just fly off to the Resistance and deliver the droid? And done. And, you know, and J.J. kept saying, no, we have to stop here and we have to meet this character. You know, we, and we kind of had to... It, they did have to stop there and because that's a pivotal point in the film where every, you know, you always have this pivotal point in, in, in every film, I believe, that has to do with separation anxiety which is all your main, whether you have five or four or two main characters have to leave each other and split up or something has to happen that splits them up or they decide to split up or they, one, they have to go their separate ways so they can come back together. And um, I honestly believe every successful film has that. Um, maybe not documentaries, but even documentaries, I would think you'd have to find that because you have to, that's the drama. And so that scene was all about how do we get, what is Maz serving? And, you know, who is she looking through? Like, at first it was all about Ray being a Jedi or the two of them joining the fight, but it really became, it really became clear it had to be about her challenging Finn because it had to be about Finn getting up, how to get Finn to get up from that table and leave without hating him. For leaving Ray, and at first she was, you know, she kind of had the force. Then she didn't have the force. She could do magical things, but then we decided that was too magical. Um, <laughs> but it, the beauty of having CGI characters, you can honestly shoot it well until time runs out or money runs out. So, um, you know, and as long as you can wedge the, it into, you know, into the existing. Um, scenery that you have or backdrop or wide shots Um, it's hard going but we realized like the film kind of started to tell us what she needed to be and what she really needed to be was this wise old you know bartender barkeep who uh, was familiar with every all our characters just hadn't been introduced earlier and she became that now the uh, and of course when uh, Ray touches a lightsaber that was something. If you don't know who the uh, Ray's parents is, that must have been a little tricky because you have to not give away too much information. Oh my God! It was was that kind of crazy trying to figure out? Because I mean, obviously Luke with the hand was the big right. reveal, but the rest of it, I mean, when you're trying like you got to hide stuff, you got to cut things, shape it. Yeah, it was really hard to figure out what you know. J- all JJ kept saying to me was like, "That scene has to be like it's like Ray's acid trip." <laughs> and I was like, I. <laughs> I know you don't know what that means, so wait a second. Um, but, you know, we just kept trying to apply logic. And, you know, then some people would, you know, would compare it to, like, Empire in the scene where Luke goes into the cave. And I kept arguing it's nothing like Luke going into the cave because that's a... In theory, that's him facing his fears and having a lesson. This is her entering a world that she doesn't want any part of. So is the force 
you know, if you were logical about it, wouldn't the force be saying nice things to her? Like, hey, you could be really special. You can be really important. You're really great. Instead, it's showing her these horrible things, and she runs out. So it's like it was a big challenge to try and figure out. I don't even know if it works for everyone or doesn't. I, it has a logic to it now that I think, you know, that the lightsaber does call to her, whoever her parents are, because she is, in fact, attracted to it. And in, in a funny way, my logic was that she's actually looking for a lightsaber as opposed to the lightsaber looking for her because she is eventually, I believe, going to become a Jedi. So she needs a lightsaber. And, um, and then when she feels the power of it, when it shows her how powerful it is, it freaks her out. And that's when, you know, she doesn't want any part of it anymore. And so that was sort of my thinking when I, tried to design whatever those shots are. I mean, originally, again, there were shots of she goes into this, she touched the lightsaber, she went into this room, and then it became the room in Cloud City, which you can still kind of see because we still kept that idea. But then she used to walk down the hall and she saw Darth Vader and Luke fighting and she saw Darth Vader cut Luke's hand off and then she turned around and she saw um, Snoke of some version of Snoke, vague version of him and a little boy. And then she, so all those images we had didn't, they just didn't have a logic that satisfied anyone enough. So we, it just was one of those things that was just ongoing, figuring it out. In the original, original script, the original idea, Larry and, and, and JJ and I guess Michael Arndt had was it was kind of like a ride through, um, the history of Star Wars. And, you know, like almost instantly we're all like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we talk, you talk, uh, so we have these great fast-paced battles. You're having some fun and you're having some action. And then we've got to kill off Han Solo. Uh, yeah, that so- was really important to um, J.J. And, um, and Harrison. I because one, I'm sorry. I didn't no, 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 no. Like exactly one of the things about having a character like Han Solo, I believe, is you, if you're trying to do a new trilogy, you have to move a, that, a character that powerful has to kind of be moved out, so you can let the new characters, you know, rise up, like Poe and Finn and pass the torch so to speak you really yeah. and i think he felt strongly about that as well now the uh it, now i read an early draft it could be you know one of those fake drafts where han just kind of falls off the catwalk in this version the film you see him touch his son's face mm-hmm. was that something that was changed or was that something harrison wanted to do i was curious was that the you discovered in the edit room um i think that was something that harrison and jj just talked about and wanted to do and wanted to I think there was a sort of, you know, there were no words he could say, and Harrison was looking for something to feel, you know, exchange with his son before he died. You didn't want to maybe uh, edit the death scene out, just tell JJ, we have to cut it. You didn't want to mess with it? (laughs) It would have ruined the story, I know. uh... You know, it was complicated, because if you think about it, you've got this huge death, death scene, and there's still, you know, what, 15, 20 more minutes of the well, 15 minutes of the movie, and they have to have a whole battle, and she has to, you know, 
lose to Ren and then win to Ren and Finn's got to get knocked out. So you have this incredibly epic death scene and it's all emotional. And then immediately you're like into this frenzy. So we had this, it was really hard to figure out how to allow that to happen and still get on with the film and still have it resonate. And, you know, it was a, it was a problem. I think in, uh, we actually went back and cause we talked about it for a long time and we, uh, in an additional shoot, we had, um, uh, that's when we added a line for Ren when he said, you know, you're all alone now. You don't have Han Solo to save you anymore. And I, we all felt it was really important to have him say that because otherwise it's like, hey, you know, they, there wouldn't be a reference to him. And it, ha- and, and it helped to have that. Uh, you know, I'm pro-Force, so is all the audience. We all love the Force. Uh, but visually, sometimes it's not, you know, it's a difficult thing visually. Like at the end of the, at the final battle where Ray closes his eyes against Kylo, that is like 20 seconds of her thinking, how did you approach that? Because that's just kind of actors. That was a real, um, that was also an additional piece of shooting. Um, and I, it was something really important to JJ. He felt like one, when we realized what the Maz character was like, going to be about, and we shot that scene finally where she confronts Ray uh, after she's touched the lightsaber. And Maz has this really, I think, one of the most important scenes in the film where she says to her, you know, we all know, you know the truth. The pe- what you're waiting for is never going to come back. What you seek is ahead of you, not behind you. And um, she says to her, you know, you have the force. Close your eyes. You can feel it. So it was very important to JJ once we realized how powerful that scene was that Ray do that. So, and that was JJ's interpretation of Ray, of showing the force coming, you know, Ray realizing she has the force and the potential so that he, you know, maybe it's a second too long. I don't know, but he really wanted to go for it. So we decided to go for it. I don't want to criticize episodes one, two, and three per se. Uh, Nobody does because there's a whole generation of kids who absolutely love the, those films, and we were very respectful of it. We didn't go into the details of mitochondrian and crazy oh, yeah. time, but yeah, the uh, force is a fungus. I don't think it was a good idea. Uh, <laughs> no, but I always felt like the lightsaber. That was the one of the things. Actually, my criticism with the lightsaber duels in the earlier episodes because this had drama behind it. You know, Finn. Theoretically dying. Mm-hmm. Ray didn't know that. Her coming to terms, so it was not just a fight scene. It was something a lot more dramatic. Oh, yeah. I mean, every, you know, I would, I have to credit JJ for, he's very, um, I don't, he doesn't just shoot things or write things without a dramatic purpose. Everything has a dramatic purpose. So even the design of Ren's lightsaber, which is this very rough, with the got some people criticized it, some people loved it, but you know it was very well thought out by by JJ. He wanted it to be rough. He wanted it to be crude, and ha, you know so because that was what Ren was all rough around the edges and uh, you know unstable. And um, I think that lightsaber reflects him. And I think when you know the lightsaber fights, you know even the choreography, you know Ray kind of stabbing forward and. You know, you knew she wasn't experienced. You, you could feel it that she until she became more fluid with it. And um, so, I, I, yeah, I think you know everything. Honestly, we talk you know about 
all of it. And it all, you know, I, can, I have an explanation for everything. <laughs> Obviously, uh, JJU, the entire cast of crew, would have been burned in effigy if you guys ruined Star Wars. It has been loved and embraced. Uh, how has the reaction been for you? It ain't surprising how much the fans actually accepted it and loved it. Because uh, it must have been a slight concern when going into the project. How I are they going to feel? More, uh, more than just slight. I mean, it was <laughs> pervasive in you know every day. You know, there were days where we were just like, "What if this doesn't work? <laughs> what if they hate it?" I mean, it was seriously. Uh, there was a lot of pressure, and it, especially on JJ, obviously because he, you know. Um, He's a Star Wars fan himself, so it would be colossal if he didn't come through. Um, Larry Kasdan, you know, who wrote Empire, was brought back in, and you know, Rick Carter, who had worked on the original one, was the production design one of the production designers. Um, Neil Scanlon, you know, there was a great effort to be true to the film and. It was really important to us. And, uh, and, then, uh, and a lot of pressure. A lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> and how did the Oscar nomination? I mean, that must have been kind of... That was shocking. I mean, we were absolutely astounded. That <laughs> um, was awesome. I don't, I, we really didn't expect it. And we didn't expect... I mean, maybe a sci-fi award I get. But <laughs> um, no, it was, really, it was really nice. It was really nice to be with my colleagues and the other people from the film who were nominated and uh yeah i don't know what to, you know there's nothing bad about it <laughs> well uh but you know this is not the first beloved franchise you jumped into and also not the first beloved character you killed off uh captain james t kirk in star trek into darkness for a brief moment uh so how is it doing we Star Trek? <laughs> how is it getting jumping into Star Trek? But also has a ravenous fan base that would have never forgiven you if. Uh... Yeah, Star Trek was uh, um, an interesting project because I thought they did, especially the first one. Um, I thought they did a great job of recreating the series and you know finding a hook into it and having this story of Spock and Kirk, uh, you know, coming together. I thought that was really fun. I thought I, it was. Um, you know, again, it, trying to recreate the old but in a new way and not feel beholden to the old thing, but, uh, you know, with new technology and new, hopefully more interesting human storytelling. I mean, the one thing I will say on, for all the sequels that I've worked on with J.J., Mission Impossible and um, Star Trek and Star Wars, he... Every those scripts and his storytelling is always emotionally based. So even though they are the, those characters are already um, formed, the stories are all emotionally driven. I mean, even Mission Impossible Three was all about Ethan Hunt becoming, you know, a civilian and married and, be, and you know becomes an emotional thing. You know, he's trying to save his wife, and so. I think that's what makes it really special working with JJ is that, you know, it's more fun to tell a human drama, even though in the, all the chaos of, you know, spectacle of it all. Um, 
Let's go back to a little your beginning. How did you get into editing? What was the spark for you? What was it something you always wanted to pursue? Or is it just something you just... You know, I didn't really know about editing. I just went to... When I was in college, I really had no idea what I was doing. And I was in the theater department, and the there was a small film contingent. I went to Stony Brook University down Long Island, and um, they they had they needed a girl to act and do some... You know, there were like seven of us, and we just made these films. And I applied to NYU and for their graduate film program because I really, I love film. I'd always loved film as a kid. You know, I spent a lot of time at the movies, and I ended up going to film school. And it was like a whole, I mean, I knew nothing of how to make films or write films. or So I just, I got into editing because I ended up having to cut my own films and... I worked in, I got the people, there was one building in New York called the Brill Building where everyone, all the editors worked, Dee Dee Allen, um, you know, Barry Malkin, uh, you know, so, and I, I, I exchanged, I did like a sort of, I worked for that company in exchange for a cutting room to finish my film, and um, that's what I did, that's how I got into it, and I just started working in editing from there, and I stayed in it because I really love telling a story, and it's the, it's like, you know, it's an incredible way to be able to tell a story and not have to get up at six in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I felt, I did really fall into it, and I, and, and I met some incredible people who were incredible mentors to me. Um, an editor called John Bloom, I worked with him for years, who, he cut Gandhi, and French Lieutenant's Woman, and chorus line and um you know just watching these people just like make magic out of this mess that came in was incredible to me and then of course you hooked up with jj on alias mm-hmm. how did that help you like jumping the tv and stuff like that well what like, happened was i had been doing features for a while and um it became really hard because i got married i had a family i had young kids and every single film i was being offered was on location and I had traveled with my kids on location and location and I just you know by the time my son was in third grade he you know he was sort of like I needed to stay in one place so um a friend of mine called me and said I know you don't want to do television but there's this guy J.J. Abrams I think you should meet him he's great and uh, he's doing this film this tv show called Alias it's about a spy but she doesn't know she's a spy I mean she knows she's a spy but she thinks she's working for the CIA but she doesn't know she's not really working for the CIA but her dad who she thinks is a bad guy is really a good guy and her mom who she thinks is dead isn't really dead and um, I was like what? (laughs) that sounds great (laughs) so she said you just have to look at the pilot and I watched the pilot, and so I went to meet him the next day. And it really was, we had this incredible meeting. He's an incredibly smart, funny, uh, you know, charming person. And I, you know, I said, look, I don't really want to get stuck in television because there's a big divide between television and features. And, and, uh, and he promised me I, I wouldn't. So four years later, <laughs> I was still doing it. And then it was great. I mean... I, what was great about it was, it was really, Jennifer Garner was great, Victor Garber was, I mean, the cast was incredible, he was incredible, the writing was 
so convoluted and so confusing. I can't even begin to tell you how many hours I spent in the cutting room going, this makes no sense, that makes no sense. <laughs> okay, we have to reshoot, re- additionally shoot. And I was constantly going to JJ and saying this, and he would say, there's a camera and there'll be a crew, go to the parking lot and shoot it. And I was like, no, I'm in the cutting room. I'm not going to shoot it. You shoot it. And you go, no, no, you shoot it. And so I found myself for four years, half the time in the cutting room, half the time shooting additional scenes. And then I directed a couple of episodes and it was really fun. I mean, it was a really, I mean, incredible way to learn everything about filmmaking, what, you know, crash course and um, if I didn't learn it at NYU, which I think I did because that was also a lot of running around and just filming, I really uh, figured it out on Alias. Right, we have time for a couple of questions from the audience, so let's raise your hand. We'll get you a mic. Uh, let's go with that gentleman first, because I can see you. Uh, in case we've got a mic going to you. So a um, big thing that struck me about this movie was the way um, it fakes out um, Finn being the Jedi and then goes on to revealing that it's Rey. So I was wondering what the uh, process behind that was, how that affected you, like editing, whether you'd cut to Finn or Rey, how that worked out. Um, No, that's a good point. I mean, we really were... We don't know that Finn isn't a Jedi. (laughs) Do you know that he's not? (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we were really aware of that, that he's... You know, obviously he's special because he decided not to go. He, you know, he he went against his training as a um, stormtrooper, and you know, as explained to me by officials of Jedi knowledge, (laughs) (laughs) um, there are different levels of Jedi. You can be strong with the Force. You can have some of the Force. You can be a little, you know, but you're not a Jedi until you go through official Jedi training. You have to be officially trained. Like at one point, um, it was really funny, J.J. was telling me this story, how he was once with George Lucas, and they were talking about uh, you know, the whole history of the Force and the Jedi, and um, George said, yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi, he wasn't strong with the Force. J.J. was like, he wasn't? <laughs> how could that be? <laughs> you know? He was like, no, no, he was just average. <laughs> so... Um, so yes, but it did affect the editing because we were aware of that and we were aware that we, you know, we didn't want to give it all away straight away. So we, these two people were both very special. Another gentleman, I promise, over there and then we'll get you. Hi, this is maybe more of a technical question, but this film was praised for a lot of practical effects, yet it still had a lot of CGI. Um, can you go through a little bit of the workflow process of that? Like you edit a, just the base timeline and then you send that off to like ILM or some, somebody and they send things back. How does that back and forth? Um, well, it, on a, usually what happens is like a, a big action scene will be pre-vis before they even start to shoot. So you have the pre-vis that the visual effects company and the editor and the director have all worked out and it's a sort of cartoon of everything and then those are the shots that when you're on the set you make sure you get the practical version of them whether it be the cockpit or the um even just a plate like oh the falcon's going to fly past you know a piece of the desert well you've got to get that piece of the desert or you know so the, the previs is very helpful because it's all broken down into shot by shot and then 
the second unit and third unit and main unit knows what they're shooting and knows what to get. Um, we had some of that on this film, not always. We didn't approve this for everything that was 100% approved, so things got created, you know, after the fact. Um, sometimes, so, but basically that's how they do, we do it. And then when I cut, I cut with all the practical stuff. Um, technically, I have my previs on a timeline, and then a, the next level I have, I put the practical stuff over it. And then I, like I said, I usually use whatever emotional thing is happening in the film to drive the scene and then work out the CG shots around it. Um, and sometimes I'll add a shot. Sometimes I'll work with ILM and say, look, can you create a new previs because I want this to happen between this and this. And it goes back and forth like that. That's lovely. Wait, and you next? Do you go right there? Oh, we've got a mic coming to you. Um, so my question is, how do you so excellently excellently pair the action with the music uh, in the editing and making sure that they both like go together at the same time and making sure they're both seven seconds long or whatever it is? Um, well, it's interesting because um, I've worked with, well, obviously this is the first time I work with John Williams, but I have worked with Michael Cicchino quite often. And, you know, when you cut, there's a rhythm to the editing and it's kind of musical. So it's like, weirdly, you, the composer will get, often get the scene and, write, and they write the music to the scene. And of course, it's always changing and changing, changing. But the internal, it, like if I have a certain rhythm that I do with visuals, that rhythm usually easily is, happens with music. It's weird, but it, it's like the same thing. It's like the same thing, but different. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah, so like, you know, if you see something like a cartoon, that's how cartoons, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and or if you, you know, you kind of do, it goes to, like, if you ever put a slideshow together, it's the same thing, you know, you kind of pick a music and you can put the slides to it, or you can, even if you have no music, if you have a beat in your head and you put the slides to it, it has a rhythm. And that's why the music usually works out pretty well. Right, we have time for one more, and I promise this lovely lady right there. Hi. Um, so I had two quick questions. One was, like, what do you cut with? Like, what program? And then uh, my other question was, like, were you inspired by the original Star Wars films for, like, the wipes that you did, like, in the editing? Um, y- yes. Uh, I'd love to tell you what program I work on. I, some avid whatever, 10 point, I have no idea. I just, I'll, be, I'll be totally honest with you. I, I probably knew at some point. I mean, it keeps changing. You know, one day I'll come into the cutting room, they'll go, we upgraded your machine. I'm like, great. <laughs> Can I get in? Do I have a new password? <laughs> I, and the funny thing on Star Wars is they kept changing the password every week. So every week I'd get there on Monday and be like, what's my password? <laughs> um, so, but I work on an Avid, and I have for years. I started originally work cutting actual films, so that was even more, you know, I still kind of cut the same way that I cut on film, but I do use an Avid, which is great. Um, and uh, what was the second question? The Wipes. The oh, legendary wipes. Star Wars the wipes. wipes. yes. The Wipes came up the first week we were editing. It was like, 
hey, JJ, are we going to use those stupid wipes? <laughs> he was like, how could it be Star Wars if we don't use the wipes? So we started getting trying to get creative with the wipes. And, you know, I mean, they were fun after a while. It was great. It was like, I know how to get out of this scene. <laughs> I'm done. Why? <laughs> Uh, we always end our uh, shows with the same question. Uh, when you, you were a kid, maybe with your family, what movie really inspired you or some, a great experience you had going to the movies, something that really grabbed you? Of course, Star Wars was for me. Just letting you know. Of course, it was Star Wars, like every, but you know. Um, but it's interesting. I, there was a movie, local movie theater very near me that would play triple features. So there were B, two B films and the A film. So... Um, I was hugely inspired by every James Bond film. I was the first person to go see every James Bond film when it came out. So I was a huge fan. And, but the B films fascinated me. They were like, you know, you never heard of them. There was, I remember there was this one called, um, oh man, oh, Mirage with Gregory Peck where he, it starts in the night and he wakes up and he can't remember who he is. And he's, and the whole film is going backwards looking for who he is. And um, I was just fascinated by it until he figures out that, you know, he's witness to some murder and people were after him and nobody would help him. And the people he thought were his friends weren't his friends. And, you know, so I kind of loved and became really inspired by these B, B films. I remember there was another one, it took place in Africa called Lipstick. And I don't even remember what it was about other than, you know, they were on some plane going through the jungle and looking for some thing in a mine that somebody, you know, it was always, you know, some sort of spy, you know, trick of the hand, you know, this is what you think it is, but it's really that. And um, I, I just found those, you know, films, you know, once I got hooked, I, you couldn't even like drag me away. And I found them very uh, fascinating. But um, so those films kind of stuck with me. And also as a kid, I was hugely into, you know, Twilight Zone and Chiller Theater and, you know, scary films. And I had an older brother who was, would watch them with me, but he wouldn't watch them because he was too scared. And I'd be like, <laughs> take that pillow off your face. But um, and weirdly now I can't watch um, horror films. I, I'm too scared. Because I don't know, some, I get so into it, I, you know, I, I like really go there. Um, so I think I just was really inspired by anything heavily visual. I really, you know, you know, audio and visual, like that combination and scaring, you know, causing emotion. And maybe I just like fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, the original Star Wars actually sparked a whole revolution in filmmaking, but also the imagination, because I think what gets lost today, the audience are used to these big budgets. This is the first time we ever saw something like this. Yeah. Uh, and I got to say, the uh, with you and JJ and the whole entire cast and crew, you gave me back my childhood and many of these people's childhoods. We I'm, felt like we did when we were a kid. That's been lost for many, many decades. Yeah, it's funny. I've had, thank you. And I, I've had a lot of people... <laughs> um, I've just had a lot of people say that come up to me and talk to me about that, and you know, and you know, I'm so uh, it was so much fun to work on and so much pressure, and um, 
the new actors, you know, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and um, yeah, uh, Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac and, and you know, Kylo Ren. <laughs> Adam <laughs> Driver, sorry. <laughs> I mean, they were so amazing. And I think that they really did that. They brought it to, and Harrison, after his accident, came back on fire. I mean, he literally was a changed man and wanted to give back to the audience, you know, to his fans. And it was inspiring every day we worked on that film because um, people were just giving it their all. And I think because the fan base is so loyal and, you know, it's such, you know, there's nothing bad about it. Like, it's all good. Well, thank, and thank you for inspiring the next generation of filmmakers with going over the process. We have a lot of editors who someday want to be editors, so we really appreciate you coming. And thank you all for coming for our final show of the year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.